0: debut. I love you smiling up there. It's tough when worship leaders aren't smiling, you know? Well, I, I think we have a lot in store uh, for tonight. Uh, thinking about the topic of work, it's both profound, uh, and yet, sadly, I think it's it's horribly, or at least poorly, understood. I mean, it's profound in the sense that the bulk of our lives are investing in it, I mean, the bulk of our lives. I mean, it's amazing when you think back all the years. If the Lord gives you seventy years, how many of them will be working? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also profound in the in that it's a source of, of great joy. But for many, it's a, a source of great disappointment, frustration. A- and then, and then, even most for me, at least in terms of its profundity, is the idea that it is the primary one of the primary ways. going to be a primary means of you using your gifts for his glory. Uh, I think for too long we've seen it as a kind of a necessary evil, the thank Uh, God it's Friday mentality, if we can just get to the weekend, if we can just get to retirement, and I think about all those people for all those years that have missed this opportunity to understand work in a biblical context. If we fail to see its importance and its eternal value, I I was thinking actually driving to you know the one who built more and more and bigger and bigger barns and it's really a parable in luke 12 about greed but but i was thinking about it and i was like he didn't understand the design the goal
1: and the purpose of work, and uh, it really could be preached well it is a pleasure to be with you um and you know it's funny you mentioned that thank god it's friday this was my first illustration sorry that's all right <laughs> Uh, Do I need to do anything with this? I'm good? Okay. Uh, So, yeah, this idea that, uh, thank God it's Friday. It is Friday. And I've been teaching uh, with Nick in my class, literally, I think, eight hours a day. So I've been talking for eight hours a day for five days. So I hope my, my, uh, my voice holds out. But I've actually been very much looking forward to being with you because in many ways i'm i'm trying to learn with you this topic of work i'm a fellow traveler i i i've i've got a wife i've got four kids i've got deadlines uh, i feel the burden of of my supervisors who are over me as well as a staff that i have to negotiate and uh i have to you know do things like Make sure my my staff's time cards are are right, and I've got to approve those things, and I've got to look at budgets, and all of this kind of stuff that we all have to deal with at some level can weigh us down and tempt us to think, oh, thank God it's Friday. I get to be free from all of this nonsense. How many of you have ever felt that? Just that sense of work is just, just basically a whip. I mean, we've all been there, and we can all kind of understand that, but <clears throat> I think because work is so familiar, it's stuff that we do day in and day out, especially as guys, we can lose sight of what God says about work. And I hope tonight, what I want to do tonight is I want to bring a, a sense of clarity. Uh, a, a, I don't, I don't want to say a 30,000-foot uh, you know, look at work but I do want to to get above the mess the everyday give us a broad angle look at what God has designed work for what is this stuff that we call work can we define this and then as as the weekend unfolds I want us to begin to ask the question how can I be happy in work I mean how can I leave a work day? feeling satisfied that I am a human being living in God's world. Because I think if the, when the rubber meets the road, we all want that. But you and I both, and maybe you're in this situation right now, you and I both have been in jobs where we think, yeah, this doesn't make me happy. This doesn't fit my shape. I'm going crazy. I need to get out of here, right? We've all had that. But we want to have this sense where I feel satisfied. I feel contentment. I feel alive when i do my job if we're going to get there we need to understand god's design for work what's happened what how work has gotten messed up and it has to do with us okay and then how god redeems our work and that's where we're headed along the way tomorrow especially i'm going to deal uh, particularly with the, the question of excellence and this is an important question because in the, in, in the work that we do, I mean, we want to be all real spiritual, don't we? Oh, I, I just leave the results up to God. But no, we all have ambition. We all want to do the, the good work, the excellent work. Well, when does that take a left or a, a left turn and go off the rails towards selfish ambition? And when is ambition and striving for excellence pleasing to God? We're going to talk about that tomorrow. So that's kind of where we're headed, but tonight I want to focus particularly on what's God's design for work? What does God's Word say about work? And I hope you brought your Bibles, and I hope you're ready to take some notes, because there's some things that I think we really need to grab hold of if we're going to capture this elusive creature called work. First of all, definition. What is work? Any ideas? I'd like to hear what you have to say. What is work? What is it? Thoughts? Not rest, Not rest okay? Not rest. Any other ideas? Yes? <laughs> Are you an engineer? <laughs> well done. Yes. <laughs> Other ideas about work. I mean, is work your job? Yeah. Is work anything more than that? Yeah, it's a means of providing for your family. So you, what you're saying here is there's more than, in work than just me. Um, how many of you are fathers or, or have a family, right? A lot of us in this room, Right. When I work, I don't just think about myself, God help me if I do, right? I'm thinking about my wife and my four kids, and I'm thinking about, you know, four college tuitions, what can we do with that, you know, that kind of question. The reality is, your job is only part of your work, and today as we look at a foundational text, my hope is that we'll begin to see that together. Your job is only what, uh, part of what it means to be a worker. And if we start equating job with work, we get off kilter. And this can have drastic ramifications when, when you come home from work and you think, my work is done. Now, my wife corrected me on this, and she, she still corrects me on this. You know, my work is not done when I leave my job behind. But I think that's a right correction because sometimes I forget and sometimes we forget. Work is not just our job. But there's a theological and biblical reason for this. So if you have your Bible, open it to the foundational chapter for work, Genesis 1, and then we're going to look at Genesis 2. Now, my hope is, when we look at this passage of Scripture, we look at it with fresh eyes, okay? Um, how many of you are familiar with Genesis 1? This is the, the creation of the world. This is the creation account, right? The first creation account. Roughly, vaguely familiar with this. Uh, for some people, this is the, uh, the key text that gets the conversation going about the difference between creation and evolution. That's a fruitful question, right? Good question. We're not going to talk about that at all tonight, and I think there is a temptation uh, when you come to a text like uh, a familiar text like like Genesis 1 to start asking questions about creation and evolution, and we miss some of the primary teachings of this text, Text one of which being what God has to say about work. So I just want to read this uh, for us uh, quickly and walk us through it uh, A little bit. And and it begins in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's important, so you need to put a pin in that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. So God created the heavens and the earth, and it's formless and void. So in the beginning, God does some work, right? What's the nature of this work? The rest of the verses tell us, in fact, in the next six sections, we have six days where God does specific work on each of these days. Verse three, then God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and he called the darkness night evening came and then morning first day. Then you go the second day, right, and you have uh, the waters above and waters below. This is verse 6 and 7 and 8. Then in verse 9, you have a shift to the third day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. Let dry land appear. So you have uh, on day 3, the sea, the dry land, and uh, vegetation begin to sprout. God saw that it was good. Evening came and morning the third day. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky. You know, that division of light and darkness on day one. On day four, he puts lights in that expanse. To do what? To separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for festivals and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, obviously the sun and moon. Uh, and verse 17, God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on earth to dominate or to govern um, the day and the night to separate light from darkness. God saw that it was good. Evening came and morning, day four. Now we come to the fifth day. And on the fifth day, you have the creation of uh, water, uh, creatures like um, fishes and birds uh, to fly in the sky. And so God creates these things. He looks and he says in verse 22, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And then you have evening and morning, day five. And then you have in verse 24, then God said, uh, this is the, the move towards uh, the sixth day, the creation of land animals, and then distinctively beginning in verse 26, human beings. By we, the time we get to the seventh day, and I'm going to skip the, second, uh, the sixth day because I'm going to come back to it. By the time we get to the seventh day and, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, let me draw your attention there. You have a repetition of terms. So the heavens and the earth. Well, wh- where's the first time we saw that? In Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So you have kind of bookends in Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-1, right? So that brackets the six days of creation. That, that is important because it makes us see those six days as distinctive unto themselves. These are the six days of God's work. The uh, theologians will call this the hexameron where you have these six days of work and on these six days God does specific tasks On the seventh day, however, the seventh day is special It's set apart from these other six days and what God says is By the seventh day God completed his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day look at what Verse 3 says, God blessed the seventh day and he consecrated it, or he called it holy. Why? For on it he rested from the work of creation. So what do you see in this passage of Scripture? Well, you see a basic structure in the way that God works the world. It goes from heavens and the earth formless and void to heavens and the earth and all its array. In other words, God works the world where it becomes nothing, formless, unshaped, and he creates a world that's formed, beautiful, harmonious, and whole. And this becomes very important because it helps us see that God as the creator has created a world with structure, order, efficiency design development where it's harmonious in the sense that land animals belong where land animals belong on the land humans belong on the land not in the sea you know Kevin Costner doesn't have it right water world wasn't right right we belong on the land that's how God created us right birds belong in the sky fish belong in the sea The world is harmonious. The division of light and darkness in day one is matched with the lights that govern the light and darkness and measure it and give times for it. So days one and day four go together, day two and day five go together, day three and day six go together. That's the way God created the world. A number of significant, very significant theological insights derive from this structure. One has to do with the orderliness of God's world. The world that we see is not random or happenstance. As one scholar says, all hints of conflict, of opposition are gone from the creation account. Creation is gently but decisively led to fulfillment in a process of formfulness. This is important. Because he says further, Brown says, nothing of God's, uh, what you see in this uh, account is God's creative direction and approval, God's timing and God's separation, everything that God does has intentionality behind it. First and foremost, Brown says, God is the creator of order par excellence. So what does this tell us about God as a worker? Well, first of all, we could say that God rolls up his sleeves, so, so to speak, and doesn't mess around. He doesn't do shabby work. He does excellent work. It's a work that creates order out of, in a sense, chaos. Formfulness in, in, instead of formlessness, where everything has its place and it's headed somewhere. The second thing that we can see about, so the the first insight has to do with the orderliness of God's world. That will prove important for our work. The second insight that we discover is that the world that God has created is good. And this is a foundational teaching for what you and I do on a regular, everyday basis. The world that God has created is good. It's good. On all of the days of creation, the pronouncement is made that the world is good. The term good in Hebrew occurs seven times, and you probably know this. Seven in the Bible is often indicative for perfection. Seven days of creation, right? Seven times this word tov or good occurs. In other words, God's goodness is perfect. The world that he's created is great. The world he has made is completed. The goodness of God's created world is found in this declaration. It is good. Its goodness is also found in its order and purpose. In other words, the world we live in is not random. The fingerprints of God are all over it, signifying it's orderly. It has direction and design that imitates, indicative. It's indicative of the character of God. When we see this world in its broken sense, it jars against us because we, I think, almost innately know it's not supposed to be this way. The world is good, and this text affirms that. The third insight that we have to learn from this text is that the world created, God created the world with this kind of hierarchy, right? Here's the hierarchy. Um, You have inanimate objects created, right? Kind of the lower strata. Then you have animate objects. Then you have animals, right? Living objects, right? Then you have animals, plants and things like that. Then you have animals. And then you have humans. Humans stand at the peak of God's created world. And that will be important for us so each of the days in the creation account is ordained by god but each of the days can't be counted as equal day one establishes light and darkness but it's day four that we understand what governs light and darkness day two tells us about the division of the waters but it's only in day five where we find about birds and the fishes Day day three is nice because we learn about the dry land But it's in day six that we learned who governs the dry land. What we see is humanity in the creation account stands at the peak of creation. And I'll I'll talk about what that means in just a minute. Humanity has a rational capacity that's greater than the animals, which is why they will govern the animals. We also see in day six, humanity alone is imbued with God's image. And I'll talk about that and what that means in relation to work in about five minutes. Now, all of these hierarchies, again, reinforce the points that we've seen before. The world is good and ordered by God. So there's this hierarchy so that's the third point. The fourth insight from Genesis 1 is the unique place of human beings in God's world. You and I as God's creatures, human beings, have a unique place in God's world. Most of you think this is, yeah, a big deal. Right. This is going to prove foundational for understanding your day in and day out exercises. Human beings are creatures to be sure, we made from the dust of the earth, right? We are created by God just like the animals are created by God, to be sure. In fact, the d- double command, be fruitful and multiply, is given both to the animals and to humans. However, human beings are not landlings, even though they're created from the dust of the ground. Human beings, according to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 are not landlings, they're landlings lords because that's the way God created us when you look at humanity in Genesis 1 and building in Genesis 2 what you see are the trappings of royalty and cult the language of royalty rule subdue but in Genesis 2 15 we'll see tend and to till the the earth and that's the language oftentimes for worship in at the temple So we have the trappings of royalty as human beings. We are to rule and subdue God's world. But it's to do that in the context of worship of God. What this means is we represent God in our world through our work. And this draws us to this point about the image of God. What does it mean? When the Bible talks about the image of God. Okay. He says the image of God. He created them male and female. Created them. What is this? What does that mean? The image of God. <clears throat> the image of God in the first place has to do with. Basically representing God and doing the kinds of things that God does. Under God's authority. Okay? You know what a Secretary of State does? Secretary of State goes into foreign countries, represents the U.S. on the president's behalf. You know what I'm saying? Right? You have that essential kind of concept in the image of God. We are to rule and subdue on our own power, in our own authority? No. Under the authority of our King, God Himself. And what that means is. In all that human beings are called to do, in all the ways that they rule and subdue the earth, we are to represent our maker. We are to picture what God's like in the way that we do our work, rule and subdue, how we are, are fruitful and multiply. What this means is, as God's, and here's a a nice theological term, as God's image bearers, right, we exercise God's rulership by ruling like like him. We imitate God. He is our king. We do like he does. Now, what does that mean for you and me? If we're supposed to rule like he does, how does God rule? You remember those first four points I gave you about what God's world is like? It's orderly, right? It's good. It's hierarchical. There's a sense to it. That's how you and I are to do our work, to where it's sensible, orderly, comprehensible, not chaotic, and it leads to, and here's the, the, the next key about the, the creation of God's work, it, it leads toward the thriving of all. If you look at the seventh day, the seventh day is interesting because it's the idea that God needs rest. Have you ever thought about this? Like, did God need to kick, kick up his, his heels? Get in a hammock and just take a break? Woo, I'm whipped. The idea is ridiculous. That God as the cosmic creator of the universe who's done this incredible six days of creation would need a break is ridiculous it's ludicrous and the early theologians knew this augustine knew this saint augustine knew this like that and so what saint augustine says is actually no this isn't about god needing a break he was tired the rest that we find in 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 the seventh day is not really so much about god taking a break But God enjoying all that he's made. But it's more than this. All that God has made enjoying God. So what is the seventh day? It's a day devoted to God enjoying his creation and his creation enjoying God. The picture is a Hebrew word. It's a word called shalom. Peace, blessedness, goodness, wholeness what you find in the seventh day is god's creation is moving towards the thriving of god so that on the seventh day all of god's creation rests in him when you and i do our work the work that we are called to do is to imitate god so that the work that we do leads to the thriving of all it's very significant So what we look at when we look at uh, Genesis 1, especially, is a big picture, a beautiful picture on what it means to be human. Work is an essential part of this. Work is a key part of this. Now let's talk about this, uh, the nature of work. The language, in fact, that you find in Genesis 1 of God creating has echoes in other texts, like in Jeremiah. And the picture of God working here is that, like a potter making clay. So God is fashioning things. He's working with his hands. There's utility there. That's what you and I do as well. The challenge of work is that we have forgotten our calling in this world. So I want you to think about this. When you go to your job, do you think, all right, how am I going to imitate God in my workplace? When you look at your bills or your staff or your things you have to do in that day, are you thinking, all right, God has given me this today. How can I picture my God In the work that God has called me to do. Have you thought about that? Here's some reasons why we don't ask those questions. All right. Here's the first one. The first one is how we conceive work. A lot of times in our churches, and this is what I've run into quite a bit, is when people think of work, they think of what I have to do. But really, it's not spiritual right it's just my job what i do on sunday mornings or on wednesday nights or in my quiet time that's spiritual that's god's business work that's my business what we have in the bible is a radically different picture all of creation in genesis 1 is created by god it's all his One Dutch theologian says it this way, there's not one square inch in the whole of God's creation where Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. Why? It's all his. He created it. Your job and my job as human beings is to reflect our creator God in all of life, and that includes our workplace. Where we've slipped up a lot of times is where we think, I go to church on Sunday, I have my quiet time, maybe I pray with my kids or over my meals, but the rest of the life is mine, it's not God's. So we don't even think about work being devoted to God. You know what you call that? You call that a kind of dualism, right? There's holy stuff and then there's the rest of stuff, right? Holy stuff is church stuff, the rest of stuff we might call worldly stuff, right? The Bible doesn't paint that picture at all. Another way that we could do it is, is something like this. Well, we have people and we have tasks that are good and Christian, but then we have tax, tasks that are just tasks. This is a kind of di- division of labor, right? So Tom, Nick. They're Christian workers. I'm just a businessman. Right? Now if I go on a mission trip, that's Christian work. If I share Christ with my friend, that's Christian work. But how I file my taxes, I don't even think about that as work, Christian work or belonging to God or I don't even think about God in that. The Bible doesn't have a category for that kind of weird separation. In fact, Genesis 1 reminds us quite clearly That all of life belongs to God. The work, your business practices, who you hire, how you fire, how you take care of your uh, employees, whether you're lazy or not. All of that falls under the lordship of of God. And all that you and I do, especially in our jobs, we have to be asking the question, how or am I? I'm imitating the God who made me in this workplace. Well, that's scary, isn't it? That's scary. I like stories, and a story where I think somebody gets this right is from a guy named Calvin Seerveld. Has anybody ever heard of Calvin Seerveld? like a couple people, two people or something? Calvin Seerveld is this uh, you know, guy who lives in Canada. He, he sits at about this tall, right? He used to teach at Michigan State University. Now he uh, teaches at Toronto, uh, uh, what is that place? (laughs) Institute of Christian Studies in Toronto. Well, he has this very interesting um, story where he talks about his dad. His dad, very interestingly, is a fish salesman. And he basically says, my dad sells fish. My dad has a fish shop. You walk in, it smells of fish. But one of the things that his father taught him was a theology of work. And the way he taught him this was like this. And here's the story that he tells. He tells a story of a day that his dad was haggling with this woman. They lived somewhere in New York, uh, South Bay. And, and, And he's haggling with this woman about a beautiful carp he's trying to sell her, right? And he says, uh, okay, so here's the carp. And he says that we went through the anatomy of the fish. The lady looking over at the eyes, No, the gills look good, there's color, there's firmness to the flesh, the belly is full, the tail hasn't been worn away, the skin looks good, it's a good fish. And so they go through the whole thing, he's working with her, And after a while, he says, beautiful fish, beautiful fish. Shall I wrap it up for you? And this lady who's been defeated by the fish salesman, right? She looks at him and she goes, well, my goodness, she didn't miss your calling, did you? Right? The point is quite simply this. That lady realized, man, this guy knows his business. He knows what he's supposed to do. When he does his work, it's like You know, he's alive. There's something special about this, right? Well, then Sierveld makes this point. He says, it's not just the selling of fish. It was the spirit of that little shop and the two employees that work with my dad. It was as if the presence of God was there. And he said, I learned that God's presence can be seen and felt with the flash of a knife." why? Because Searveld's dad knew God belongs at work. And that doesn't just mean sharing the gospel. It certainly means that. But it means in the whole of life, making sure that Christ's lordship, God's reign, is present in the daily operations of business. Now, that is an encouraging and fun story. But do you know what I find that to be? I find that story to be absolutely terrifying. And here's the reason why it forces me to ask the question what does my workplace look like? When my uh, employees come to my office, my assistant, my uh, uh, assistant to the director, my research assistant, a couple of other people, when they come into the office, is the fragrance of Christ present? Or is it the fragrance of Heath efficiency, right, and get more students? It's a tough challenge. And this is where uh, I work. I work at a seminary. I felt this uh, feeling as well when I worked at a university in the U.K., How, in a secular context, right, where there's no kind of Christian witness, how do I work in a way that's imitating the reign of God in the world? Well, it certainly means being nice. Paul Marshall in his book, Heaven is Not My Home, a lot of times the way Christians do their workplace is they're the nicest people in the workplace. Well, that's good. But if nice people can't do the job, that doesn't really help. You're nice, but you're a pitiful worker. So niceness is part of it. But part of it has to do with the diligence. And with with the, the creative power that God used to order the world. To order nothing into a world. That's the same diligence that we're supposed to engage in our workplace. Literally in a sense, makes something out of nothing. Another implication that arises from this is that work cannot be seen, if it has this grand theological point behind it, work can't just be seen as getting your wage. Guys, listen. I count the pennies just like everybody else in this room. And the great temptation in our culture is to work not for the glory of God, but work for money. Money is an aspect of our jobs. Money is an aspect of the things that we do day in and day out. But please, let's be reminded, if our job is to be imitating God, to exercise his lordship in all of life, in our workplace included, then let's please remember We should be doing this whether we get paid well or not. It's who we are. Now, this becomes a challenge. How do we do this? How do we take this huge level look, right, high level look, and then begin to apply it in our lives? Strangely, I think part of the answer comes in Genesis 2. So if you have your Bible, do turn to Genesis 2.15. In Genesis 2.15, we have what's often called the cultural mandate. What's the cultural mandate? The cultural mandate is to take something that's unformed and to cultivate it. So it grows stuff. In Genesis 2.15, obviously this is the uh, second account of creation. The focus is microscopic on the Garden of Eden. And this is where Adam and Eve are in the garden. And God gives the command of work to Adam. And he says, your job is to till and to tend the garden, to cultivate. So in essence, what Adam is, is he's a farmer, right? Take the raw stuff of the earth and grow something out of it. That's a good definition for good work. Take the raw stuff and grow something, developing. Till it's thriving again the echoes of sabbath are here well as i mentioned earlier the interesting thing about this passage is the two words tend and till what does your english translation say in 215 it says in mine it says to work and watch over it what does your translation read work it and keep it cultivate it and keep it right Do you know those two words are often used about priests in the temple? So the picture is not just that Adam's a farmer. He's one like a priest as he hoes his rows. How can you and I get our hands around the bigness of this task of work, uh, representing God well in the whole of work? How can we do that? I think Genesis 2.15 is helpful because it reminds us, friends, you and I are in holy orders. You and I are in holy orders. Whether we're a parish priest or a toilet bowl cleaner, we're in holy orders. And it gets really intimidating if I start asking, oh my goodness, how can I do all this? How can I represent God? Think about Adam and Eve. They're in this garden. They're supposed to be tending and tilling. Here's how I would do it. What I think Genesis 2.15 alerts us to is worship. Is, uh, work is never supposed to be apart from the spiritual life. It's supposed to be worship. So here's a very practical takeaway. Pray your way through the day. Devote your time, your energies, your life, your workplace to God. Work is not work. It's worship. What does that look like for me? What does that look like for me? Let me just give you some very practical things for me. Okay. Right now, I'm thinking through my weekly schedule for my staff. And what I'm thinking is, because I can do this, right? I'm thinking maybe twice a week, I need to have a set time in the week where my staff Praise for our students. We have, I have 147 Ph.D. students. Maybe I take this time in the work week where I, I devote this to abs- the structure of our work week, and it's paid. those That time where they pray, that's work. We devote that to praying for our students, or praying for the issues that are going on in our office. Very personally, I'm also asking myself How am I scheduling the people who work in my office? Am I being exploitative in how I schedule my workers? That's a kind of abuse. That's displeasing to God, and that's not imitating my God very well. When I do my budget reconciliation every quarter, am I being honest in how I reconcile? Honesty, justice, proper scales are pleasing to the holiness of God. It images God well. Am I overworking? Now, now I'm going to meddle and I'm sorry, I'm going to meddle. Right. When you look at the seven days of creation, it's very interesting. The seven days lead towards a day of rest. One of the things that's neglected about discussions on work is the necessity of rest. Rest and work belong hand in hand. They need to be in a healthy rhythm. Right? It's very important. In fact, God built this into Israelite law. Turn to Leviticus chapter 25. I could say this as well. This is the fourth commandment in both uh, Exodus 20 and then in Deuteronomy 5. God commands that every day of the week is a Sabbath. There is a Sabbath day. And the idea behind that is everybody is supposed to enjoy God on the Sabbath. You rest. Enjoy God. So the rhythm is work and rest. And you think that that's in the weekday, right? Every week this is how it's supposed to be in Israelite law. But look, it goes further than this. Look at uh, Leviticus 25. The Lord spoke to Moses, this is verse 1, on the Mount Sinai. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, Whenever you enter the land I'm giving you, the land will observe, what? The land will observe a Sabbath to the Lord. You may sow your field for six years. You may prune your vineyard and gather the produce for six years but there will be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land in the seventh year, a Sabbath to the Lord. Now, keep going. You are not to sow your field or prune your vineyard. You are not to reap, or, uh, to reap what grows itself from your crop or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. It must be a year of complete rest for the land. Whatever the land produces during the Sabbath year can be food for you, for yourself, your male or female slave, and the hired hand, foreigner who stays with you. All its growth may serve as food for your livestock and wild animals in your land. But it goes further. You are to count seven sabbatical years, seven times seven years, so that the time period of the seven sabbatical years amount to 49. Then you are to sound the trumpet. In the seventh month, tenth day of the month, and you will sound it throughout your land on the Day of Atonement, you are to consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim freedom in the land for all its inhabitants. What is God doing? In weeks and years and decades, God is building in Israel's cycle of work. He's building a cycle of rest. Here's another challenge with work. You ready for this? Part of imaging God well means learning to rest well. So now I'm going to meddle. Are you imaging God the way that you rest from your work? I'm guilty, man. I'm really guilty on this. If you've got type A driven folk, and a lot of guys are, what happens is we get in this mode right trail boss mode and i'm going to get to that goal and i'm going to hit it and i'm going to you know hell or high water i'm going to hit that goal and you overwork and it's not pleasing to god genesis one gives us a vision of the rhythm of work and rest and it's a message that you and i must hear and what that means is you might not be top dog in the company but you'll be pleasing to god Now, are you going to bite that one off and chew on that one for a while? Are you willing for less in your work if it's pleasing to God rather than more and not imaging God well? I think this is a challenge. All told, what we see in Genesis 1 is a picture of God's creation of the world for shalom. It's ordered Everything's in its place. Everything's a, uh, performing according to its function. Everything is moving towards thriving under, God's crea- uh, under God and his kingdom. Shalom, this picture of rest and joy and happiness, is found in creation. The world is good. This is how God created it. So how are you and I supposed to do work? In the same way. Tomorrow, especially, we're going to talk about why we don't have that experience in our workplace. So tomorrow morning, I want you to be here and be ready to go because we're going to talk about. And yes, we're going to talk about the fall. And what I want to say is the fall affects more than just your soul. It affects your work, too. Tonight, the goal has been to get a big picture look at work. What you need to understand is your workplace belongs to God. These weird dichotomies where you say, well, you know, these guys here, they're the ministers. They do the they do the spiritual stuff. And I'm just I'm just a businessman. No, you're in holy orders just like they are. The work looks different, but it still belongs to God. So pray through the day. Give that time to God. If there are some things that you need to repent of tonight, some work habits that need to change maybe you need to change the way that you're doing your business could i i just encourage you don't be afraid to say yes to god on that it's scary but it's worth it okay so i think i'm gonna pause and then i, I what i'd like to do is i'd like to open up a uh, discussion cuz a lot of times what happens when i talk about these issues is everybody looks at me and they're like, I've never heard that, you're bothering me, get out of my face. And fair enough, right? I bother me too. So uh, I, I think I want to talk about, what is. What is do, you, do you have questions about this? Do you have questions about what this might look like in your life? So let's have some discussion and kind of kick it around a little bit, okay?